Well, welcome once again to the uh, to our study of Ecclesiastes. This is our final installment, our final recording on this study. And what I thought to do this time is just um, go back to the very first handout. Um, the handout is available as a um, complete syllabus on the church website. Uh, that is www mayorcommunitychurch.com and um, I thought I'd go back to the first handout which is the outline of Ecclesiastes and I thought I would uh, take a a 30,000 foot view as they say uh, over the hand over the outline over the handout <clears throat> that has the outline on it and uh, just um, just revisit very briefly and, and as I say from the long view what we did in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, hopefully you have the handout in front of you and your Bible and let's go ahead and, and do that. So we, uh, we see there are uh, seven uh, parts to Ecclesiastes. We broke it into seven parts. And the first one was the teacher's thesis abstract. The Teacher's Thesis Abstract. And that was chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. And that's the part that, as we did uh, dwell on before, that's the part that tends to throw people off. They read this thing about, you know, all the rivers flow into the sea, all things are wearisome, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and, um, you know, all of that. Vanity of vanities. And people get thrown by that because they view it as the writer, whoever he is, uh, is being very negative and, and almost despondent. But we discovered, if you came along with us in the study, and you can always go back and listen to those earlier recordings, that what the, the writer is saying, and I think it's Solomon, but whoever it is, what he's saying is something that we all know. We all intuitively know that there's something wrong with life. Life is, in fact, the mother of all intangibles. That's what he's saying when he says vanity of vanities. He's not just saying vanity. He's saying the most vain of all, the most empty, the most ethereal of all things is life itself. Life just isn't very sensical. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. And he'll go on in these 11 verses, he'll go on to explain that nature actually mocks man. And he's describing man's life in terms of creation, nature. And it's easy to get off track as we read this and think that he's only talking about nature, but he's not. He's using nature as the backdrop. He's actually talking about man, the human condition. And what he basically says in these 11 verses is man is inconsequential. Man lives a life that is beneath him. It isn't what it should be. And he'll actually end the book with his final argument to that effect. 
when he talks about the ebb of life during your final days of life on earth. He says that's the, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate insult. That's the ultimate um, parody of life is the fact that you live a few years and then you're gone. The mother of all uh, intangibles, inconsequential, and has no lasting impact. And then in the second section, which begins in verse 12, and goes on um, through, um, well, we could say that it uh, there's elements of it in verse 12, and there are elements of it in verse 16, and there are elements of it in a few different places. Uh, and we kind of picked those as we went. Because the second section really is about the teacher. The second section we called the teacher. And we did what we did there is we spent some time examining who this person was. And we did that in a couple different ways. We um, wanted to find out if it's possible to identify him. And if not, and it isn't, uh, that we then wanted at least to, to get an idea of his uh, worldview, if you like, his faith. What was the faith of the teacher? And so really three things came out of this section where we examined the teacher, and we actually concluded that there's so many things that the teacher says about himself that are also said of Solomon. And we went back into the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles and elsewhere, and we actually saw instances of other people and Solomon saying things about Solomon that matched almost word for word what the writer of Ecclesiastes said about himself. So although a lot of Bible teachers and expositors and, and, and people who study the Bible and, and, and theologians, although many of them would make an argument against Solomon being the um, writer of the book, being the teacher, I think we made a pretty good case for the possibility that he is. And again, whether we like to think of him, the writer, as being Solomon or not, we can't be adamant because there is nothing in the text of the book of Ecclesiastes, which actually says who the writer is. So the three things we got from that section was we got the faith of the teacher. We found he was a very faithful man. He believed in the fear of God. He believed in the afterlife. He believed in payment for sin. He, he was a very faithful man. And we examined the identity of the teacher. That was the second thing we did, examined his identity. Could we actually find out who he was? And we couldn't, although we have some pretty strong clues. And then in that section, the third thing that came out of that section was we found out the origin of the title of this book. Because the origin is, uh, the, the title of this book is nothing more than the Greek um, rendering of the Hebrew word kolobet. And kolobet was, of course, what the Jews called this book. And uh, it's that simple. And Kolobet, or Ecclesiastes, just means the teacher. That's what it means. So, the first thing, 
teacher's thesis abstract, the second thing, the teacher. The third thing, the third division we made of this book was the teacher's research. We could have also entitled it the um, teacher's meditations, but what we did when we looked at the teacher's research, and that was from verse 12 on through most of chapter 2. So the middle of chapter 1 on through most of chapter 2, but not quite, but almost all of chapter 2, we have the teacher's research. And what we have him saying is that life has a lot of mystery to it, and those mysteries are not accidental. They are intentional. God made life a mystery on purpose. The second thing we saw by looking at the teacher's research was that man can do nothing to make it better. There's a riddle to life, and it cannot be unlocked. It cannot be deprogrammed. It cannot be decoded. And the third thing we find out, found out, are you ready? You know this, but some of you may not. God not only made it a riddle, and he not only made it to where we couldn't unlock it, but he also put in us a desire for that very thing, to unlock it. And uh, we'll see that these uh, points are actually, uh, these three I've just given you, are actually three of seven. There are actually seven points that the teacher uh, brings out. And, and I'll go ahead and remind you of them now. Life is broken. It's so thoroughly broken that man can't fix it. It's only frustrating to try. Yet, ironically, God compels us to try. And at the same time, he blocks us from accomplishing that. And then we found that God orchestrates every bit of our lives. And then at the last, the seventh part, the seventh point was that God did this. That he made this riddle and he made us yearn to solve it so that we would look up to him. So that we'd be drawn to him. So then we, we went on to the teacher's thesis. That's the fourth division of the book. And that is from 224 through 315. And, of course, uh, that means near the end of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 3, 224 to 315. And we call this the teacher's thesis. And what he does here is he actually gets to what he wants to talk about. <clears throat> in, his, in his abstract, or his hook, if you like, in uh, the first 11 verses of the book, he's giving us his, his teaser, his hook, his abstract, which is going to want us to, to hear what he has to say. And now in the fourth part, the teacher's thesis, he's going to get to what he wants to say. And what he wants to say is that, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 2, a pivotal verse, you may recall that, it's a very, very key verse, verse 24, chapter 2, where he basically says, I've said how bad life is, how broken it is, but... Your response to it must be of faith. It must be to let God be God. Let God be God. And um, he'll even give us uh, descriptions of two ways you can respond. And you'll find that in uh, 25 and 26 of chapter 2. He gives the faithful response and the, and the unfaithful response. And he calls the unfaithful response 
vanity. So not only is the fact that there is vanity in life, life is broken, but your wrong response to it is further vanity. Very ironic. Well, this section continues into chapter 3, and in chapter 3, the first eight verses are, are a celebration of God's sovereignty. That is, he's just told us in verses 24, 25, and 26 of chapter 2, the very end of chapter 2, he's told us we must choose to let God have the right, to give God the right to do what he's done and what he wants to do. And he starts chapter 3 to say why. Why we should let God be God. And guess what? It's because he's God. And this is where you have this poem that many people have taken and, and perverted and misused. But if you just read it simply and read it prayerfully and faithfully, you'll find it's describing God. It's not describing us. This is not about man. This is about God. And it's not an accident that verse 2, which is the very first item in his list of you know descriptive items about life, the very first verse in that description, verse 2, is birth and death. And that's not an accident. Because the writer knew, driven by the Holy Spirit of God, he knew that someone would want to make this about themselves. And then he starts out right away saying, how can this be about yourself? It's, who controls birth and death? Not you. Do you see? So that was the teacher's thesis. And then we went on to the teacher's complaint. And the teacher's complaint begins in chapter 3, verse 16, and goes all the way through chapter 4, which would be 4.16. So 316 to 416, this is division number five, the teacher's complaint. And what happens in the teacher's complaint is the writer poses, he, he, he poses two objections. It's kind of like a teacher or a lawyer or someone who knows that one of the ways you can get a point across is to accommodate some some objections to his point. And that's what their teacher does here. He brings up two points. He's playing devil's advocate. That's what he's doing. And he brings up two points. And the first point that he brings up is someone might say, well, God's, God's orchestration of life, God's choreography seems wrong to us. It seems wrong to us. He seems like he's not doing a good job. And he mentions all the the bad things. People, you know, people having things happen in their lives that, that hurt them. Very, very hurtful. Uh, look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Furthermore, I have seen unto the Son that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. He's saying injustice, inequity. Why is God letting these things happen? That's his first pushback. And he'll answer that. He actually does answer that. Um, that's his first 
And he does give an answer. It's a little bit brief, but it's there. He says a, a few things in answer. He says, God did not make a mistake. He says, God is wise and eternal. And he says that God is giving man the freedom to discover for himself just what he is. Look at verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but animals. And then he says, at the end of chapter 3, I have seen that nothing is better that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him. He's saying, trust God. He's saying, trust God and be content. Give God the right to do what he's done. And then the writer will bring up his second objection, his second hypothetical objection, his second pushback. And this begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And it really goes through the whole chapter, all through verse 16. He begins to say, let's go ahead and read it, verse 1. Then I looked again at all the acts of, what? Oppression, which were being done unto the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors there was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Verse 4, And I have seen every labor and every skill which is done as a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. He's saying, not only is, not only is the world wired in such a way that people have very unfair things happen to them. But many of these unfair things happen at the hands of other men. Do you see it? You see it? He's saying there's oppression and there's injustice. Before it was inequity and, um, uh, you know, things happening that, you know, were not fair. But now he's saying oppression and injustice. Impression and injustice. And he gives answers to this too. He says, look at verse 4, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. You know what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, we can observe that. But look at that last sentence. This too is vanity. He's saying, we can observe this, but this is not the way God originally made the world. This was not supposed to be. He gives a couple other, well, one other, one other um, answer. And that starts at verse 5. And we read it in 5 and 6. And essentially what it is, is he's saying, well, what choice do you have? What choice do you have in the face of oppression and injustice what can you do about it? Verse 5, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. He's saying some people decide they just want to pull out of life. They want to live retractedly. They want to live small as opposed to live large. 
live small, pull back, um, you know, kind of, kind of check out, philosophically anyway, not physically necessarily, check out of life. And he says, well, is that what you're going to do? Is that what you're going to do? And in fact, look what he says, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. He's saying, you know, some people decide, I'd rather have little and have quiet than have a lot and have turmoil, do you see? So that's what some people will decide. In fact, the writer will actually expand on this. It's pretty important to him because he will expand on it in chapter 7 for half the chapter. Half of chapter 7 is him describing people who respond to God's mastership of the world in the wrong way. They respond with contempt instead of contentment. Contempt instead of contentment. Well, that got us through um, that got us through um, section five, the fifth section of the book. And then we go on to section six. And section six is kind of interesting because what it is is um, you know how well maybe you don't um, but there are examples elsewhere in the Bible where for example the Apostle Paul in Romans or in other books particularly Romans uh, he will uh, give a lot of doctrine and you know teaching on what scripture says about God and about us and about life. And then in Romans, in beginning in chapter 12, he'll, he'll start with the practical. He, he begins with the theological and then he goes to the practical. Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes has done the very same thing. He starts with the, the, the theology and now beginning in uh, the sixth section, which begins in chapter 3, verse 19, and goes all the way through chapter 12, middle of the chapter. So from chapter 3 to chapter 12, he's going to actually give us advice. He's going to give us advice. And what he'll do is, it's basically a sermon. It's basically a 10-point sermon. And the sermon, uh, I like to call, you know, you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapter 7. I like to call this the sermon in the muck. In other words, the writer, the teacher, has told us that the world is an inhospitable place to live, that life is broken, uh, and now he's saying, how do we navigate? How do we live this broken life? And that's what he'll do for most of the book. That's what he does. So let me give you the ten sermon points. First one he'll he'll talk about is uh, approach God fearfully, approach God fearfully, and um, that begins actually in chapter five and goes on for seven verses in chapter five. Look how he starts in chapter five: Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know. They are doing evil. 
Verse 2, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. And what might such a person be thinking if they're doing that? He tells us. He tells us in verse 6 of chapter 5. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. You see what he's saying? This is the person who's in contempt of God. This is the person who has chosen to not let God be God, but to rebel and to rebuff and tell God, God, you're in charge, but you sure made a big mistake in what you did. You see? He says, don't do that. Approach God fearfully. The next thing he'll tell us, sermon point two, is beware of materialism. And he'll spend a lot of time on that from chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12, which is all of chapter 6. So half of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, he will discuss materialism. And he says, beware of materialism. Beware. And um, a, lot of good, a lot of good points there in that particular sermon point. He goes, goes into contentment. Uh, he talks about money causing problems and wealth and possessions causing problems and, and so forth. His next sermon point will be number three, expect adversity. Expect adversity. And you'll see that in chapter 7, the first 14 verses, which are written in many versions of the Bible. They're written in a in a block quote kind of form, in other words, sort of a prosaic uh, form. And what he's saying there is that there are reasons that God gives us adversity. There are good outcomes of adversity, actually. And he gives uh, three of them under this section. One, that adversity actually has a lot to do with shaping not only your morals and your ethics, but even your legacy. And that legacy, he'll describe it both as your living legacy and that legacy after you're dead, after you're gone. The second benefit or result of adversity he'll give us is that it produces a right perspective on life. If you like, you can call it level-headedness or sober-mindedness. He's saying that adversity Adversity actually keeps you from pretending that life isn't broken. You can't pretend that life hasn't gone off the rails somewhere. The human condition is messed up. And he says that will keep you, uh, adversity will keep you from going down that road. And then the third outcome he gives under the heading of expect adversity is that adversity actually teaches us contentment. It actually teaches us contentment. And in that context, we're in chapter 7 and we're looking at 10 through 14, the last uh, five verses, he actually talks about your stuff, your struggles, your lot in life. Do you see? He's giving us uh, objects of, of our contentment, or I should say um, focuses on these things that create contentment in us. So he says... Expect adversity, because the adversity does have some good outcomes.
The next section, uh, number four, section number four, the division, is going to be about um, society, and also number five will also be, be about society. So number four and number five are both about society. And number four is don't isolate yourself from society. And this is that part where I told you where he talks about the man, the individual who draws back and tries to shelter themselves from this hurtful world. And he discusses that. And uh, I have found that the New Living Translation, the NLT, actually has some pretty good rendering of these verses. So you might want to check that out. And then this, the fifth section, he mentions society again. And after saying don't isolate, he says in, ch in section 5, which starts at chapter 7, verse 25, and goes through chapter 8, verse 8, 725 to 88, he says live in uh, society wisely. Live wisely. Live circumspectly. Or as Jesus said, be as shrewd as a wolf, but as harmless as a dove. In other words, step lightly, step carefully, and be faithful. The sixth section that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes begins in chapter 8 and goes through the middle, or almost to the very end, rather. So it begins in chapter 8 and goes almost through chapter... Oh, I'm sorry, no, it does not. Uh, all of chapter 8. So all of chapter 8, we have uh, the sixth division, and that is the heading of In the Face of Inequity, Cling to God. He says, don't respond unfaithfully to inequity. Keep hanging on to God. And he gives some very good advice in that section. Again, chapter 8, um, verses 9 through 17. So really the second half of chapter 8. And then the seventh division of the book of Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite, if not my favorite. And that begins... Um, that begins at chapter 9 and goes through the first half of the chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6. And that one I entitled, God is not defined by our circumstances. I love that. I love that because that is so needful today. So many people think that if they have a bad time with some circumstance, then God doesn't like them. And if they have a good time with a circumstance, then God does like them. You know, and that's not that's not the way God is. That is not the way God is. All right? Let me show you something. Let's see. Verse 1, chapter 9. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. You hear what he's saying? He's saying we look at life when we look at it unfaithfully and wrongly. We look at it as when this, when a bad thing's happen, God is unhappy with us. When a good thing happens, God is happy with us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is saying no. No. It happens more or less randomly, he's saying. Now, whenever the Bible poses the notion of randomness, it's talking about randomness from our point of view, not God's. Our point of view. And in fact, he will say that in verse 11. 
At the end of verse 11, he says, Time and chance overtake all. But you know what? That's only from our perspective. It's not from God's perspective. Do you really think the writer of Ecclesiastes, who, we've, who we proved was a faithful man, and who's speaking for God because he has the Spirit of God, do you think God's going to call what he does serendipity? Chance? No. God says he does things deliberately. He does things deliberately. He does things on purpose. And they're always good and they're always wise. Always. And there's actually verses in Ecclesiastes that say that. But here what we're saying, what we're looking at is the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying our circumstances cannot filter who God is in our heart. We can't use our circumstances to determine what God is like. Now don't get me wrong. Circumstances can be useful in your Christian walk. And they're useful because they give us opportunity. They give us opportunity to practice our faith, to practice Scripture. But they do not define God. They are not the lens through which we understand God. Even Peter said that. Peter, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, he said in the, uh, in the book by, with his name, under his name, he said, even though I was on the mountain with Jesus, what Scripture says about him is more important than what I witnessed on the mountain. Check it out. He actually says that. In other words, circumstances give us the opportunity to express ourselves to God. But circumstances are not a means of God to express himself to us. That is Scripture. That is Scripture. And if you don't want to be captured by some cult or schism or some kind of aberrant theology, you must always consider the Word of God, the central and the last word on who God is, not your circumstances. Not your circumstances. So that was the uh, that was the seventh section, and I think it's a great section. I really like the fact that it gives us a lot of instruction on how to view God. And then section number eight, which I am calling Cultivate Contentment. Cultivate Contentment. It begins in verse 7 of chapter 9, where he says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. This is the seventh time the teacher has said this. And then section number nine, I call a minority with God is a majority. And that begins in chapter nine also, and that's verse 13. So at verse 13, through all of chapter 20, we have uh, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, telling us, uh, he, he's describing minorities and majorities. And he basically says what, what each one has the benefit of. And what he says is, you know, the minorities, and of course that's believers. Believers on the, are in the minority. He's, he says minorities, unfortunately, no matter how good they are, they really have very little impact until they do something wrong. 
And that's what he says in verse 18 of chapter 9 and, and verse 1 of chapter 10. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. 10.1, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So minorities are, you know, they exist, but they tend to not have much weight. They tend to not have much impact until they're in some way evil. Then they do. And he goes on and talks about common sense, talks about leaders, and so on. Very, very insightful section. And then lastly, uh, section 10. And section 10 begins in chapter 11 and goes all the way through the middle of chapter 12. And what that one is going to be called is Seize the Day. Seize the Day. Um... And that is a final call, you might say, a final, um, a final bit of instruction to those who see life is broken. They know they have to make a choice as to believing God in the midst of that and believing who he is and that he loves and that he's right and righteous. And yet... Um, you may not find that easy to believe, and he's saying it will not. It will not be any easier, and even to the end of your life, you will. You will have to choose. It's, it, your choice is not going to be made for you. He says, "Seize the day." In other words, you don't have much time. You don't have much time. While you're here, while you're on earth, you have to choose. And it's interesting that he begins this in chapter 11. He begins with talking about giving. He begins with talking about being generous. It's really interesting. And he really goes on for six verses about being generous. And that is interesting to me. Because in telling us to make use of our time, to seize the day, to be generous, carpe diem, which is the common Latin phrase, he says, first off, to be generous. Don't be a tightwad. Don't be a miser. Don't hoard. He goes on for six verses with that. And then beginning in verse 11, of chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 7, he will uh, talk about enjoying life. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and then remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. And then in verse 9, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. He's saying enjoy life. Remember to take time to enjoy life. He's not saying party down. You know that, because he's already, he's already spoken against that uh, error in the first half of chapter 7. That's what chapter 7 is largely about, first half. So here he's saying enjoy life. You don't have very much of it. not going to be very long. Enjoy it while you can. 
And then the third thing he's going to say into this section, and that begins in chapter 12, verse 1, and goes through verse 8, is aging is life's final lesson. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if you couldn't make up your mind about life being broken, death will do it for you. Death will show you incontrovertible truth that life is indeed corrupt and broken. That's chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And he describes the person who is in the last years of her life, maybe even the last months of her life, and how their body is breaking down and things are start, you know, don't work anymore and they have cataracts and pretty soon they need a wheelchair, you know, all that kind of thing. And it's really a, a somber description, a bit funereal, I guess, um, but it's practical too because what he's saying here is that the fact that we die all by itself tells us that life isn't what it should be. Life wasn't made to end. Not even the physical life. Physical life was not made to end. It wasn't. And he's saying the fact that it does should be a lesson. It should be a, a tip-off. It should be a red flag to us. Something else he's saying, though, is as he describes the body breaking down, he's describing, describing the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall. Genesis chapter 3. And he's saying if it weren't for the fall, if it weren't for the corruption that was brought into the human condition, this wouldn't happen. And so it's a it's a sort of an apologetic for uh, the idea of original sin and the fall. Not to get too theological, but, but that's what it is. That's what it is. So there's the ten uh, points of his sermon. We still have a few verses left in the book, and what happens there is um, our last section, which is section 7. Again, the book divided into, into, into sections, divisions. And that last division is uh, the seventh one, and I call this one the teacher's final plea. And this is where the teacher, the writer, will actually say, in a nutshell, this is your last shot. I've given you my best to describe to you the problem and what you need to do about it and what God wants you to do about it. And he says, you know, these words are very, very important. They're meant to provoke you. Look what he says. Um, verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. He says, I, I, I've been trying to provoke you. I've been trying to get you to make a decision. I've been trying to make you make a choice. And you must make a choice. You must. He'll go on to say, um, verse 12, The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. He's saying, My words are directed toward you, and they're precious, and they're few, and they're important. But you can read a lot of stuff out there that goes way beyond what I've said, but it won't do you as much good. It won't do you the good that I'm doing you with what I'm saying. You know what he says about his, his words, right? Verse 10, delightful words and words of truth. Verse 10. 
So that's the last section, section uh, 7, division 7, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, I hope, I hope that this book, now that we're done, I have, I have a few things that I hope. One is that you see now that it is not a, mis a, a, a mysterious book. Even though its language is difficult, its language is difficult because it's one of the one of the wisdom books. There are five wisdom books in the Bible: Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, wait, see, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, what am I forgetting? Song of Solomon and Job. Yeah, and Job. So let me say it again. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those are the five wisdom books. And they're called wisdom books because they kind of they kind of refer and rely on observable facts of life to stir you to a response. That's why they're called wisdom books. They're to give you wisdom. They're to give you the wisdom that life should already be teaching you, should already be giving you, but you're not getting it. Do you see? So the five wisdom books. And uh, sometimes, sometimes if you can, check uh, one or more of those other books out. Uh, we, I may in the future do a study on uh, Job. We did one in our church, but Job has 42 chapters, so <laughs> that would take a pretty long time. Uh, we we did it at church. Uh, we kind of streamlined it, but it still took, um, I think it was four or five months. Maybe, no, I think it was longer than that. I think it was six or seven months. Anyway, so uh, I do encourage you to do that. But, but then another thing I want you to get out of Ecclesiastes is that it is not a negative book. It's not a mysterious book, and it's not a negative book. It's a very positive book. It's an apologetic book. One of the many commentators on this book, some are better than others, but one of the many of them out there, and there are many, many books that comment on this book, one of the commentators called this a major work of apologetics. That's what he called Ecclesiastes. Now, apologetics among Bible um, students means explaining the truth. That's what it means. Or if you want to get technical, a kind of a legal definition would be defending yourself. But in a, in a more broad and more widely applicable term, uh, it means to tell the truth. It doesn't mean to apologize. That just happens to be the Greek, <laughs> the root of this uh, word, uh, you know, apologia. Um, it just happens to be, you know, what it is. But it's not apologizing. It, it's something different. It is telling the truth and explaining your position and defending your position, that sort of thing. Um, but I hope that you see that it's not a, a negative book, not a mysterious book, and it's not a negative book. And it's one that calls you to faith. It calls you to faith. Now, is the name Jesus Christ... In this book of Ecclesiastes? No, it isn't. But I think that, along with many other Bible believers, 
that you can't get very far from the gospel in any book of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, you can't get very far from the gospel. Because that's the whole purpose of the Bible. From cover to cover is to tell about Jesus. So, uh, though it may be obscure in certain passages, like much of Ecclesiastes, in fact, the gospel's still there. It, it, it exists. For example, when the teacher talks about judgment and sin and righteousness, guess what? Those same three things are in the Gospel of John. Um, when the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about having to make a choice as to who God is, guess what? That's a very good jumping off point for the Gospel. It's a very starting point for what Jesus Christ did in dying for us on the cross. Most definitely. So I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, go back and uh, listen to the other um, recordings and um, feel free to um, contact uh, the church um, and look at other resources we have and even visit and see what we're all about. It's just a it's just a community church. It's no particular, you know. It's not Baptist or, you know, Pentecostal or, you know, Episcopalian. Is none of those things. It's just a community church, and uh, that believes uh, that believes and lifts up Jesus Christ, and uh, celebrates him. I think you'd be uh, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised to come visit. Anyway, hope you uh, enjoyed this, and until next time. Believe God.